Hi, I'm Shane Safir. And I'm Alcine Mumby, and this is Street Data Pod, where we dream with you about next-generation schools that affirm, love, and value every learner. Here we have conversations about healing, hope, and listening at the margins. Friends, welcome back. This is our final episode of season three, and we are so, so blessed to have with us a dear friend and collaborator of mine, Dr. Sosan Jaber. Dr. Sosan Jaber is a global educator, presenter, equity strategist, curriculum designer, community activist, and keynote speaker of 20 plus years. Dr. Jaber founded Education Unfiltered Consulting and works with schools both nationally and internationally. She completed her PhD in curriculum and instruction with a focus on inclusion and belonging for students at the margins. Sosan was one of 10 finalists for Illinois State Teacher of the Year and awarded the Cook County Teacher of the Year in 2023. Welcome to the pod, Dr. Jaber. We are so thrilled to have you here. Welcome. I'm so honored to be here with the both of you. Like I was saying earlier, you guys are my friends. I listen to you every single morning on my way to work. Oh. Anybody who's heard me speak, and I think I spoke at over 70 conferences now just this last year alone, knows that I constantly center street data in everything. And I always tell people, if you're working with kids and you haven't read this book, if you have any role in education, you have not read this book, you need to go read this book. So uh, to be working on part two feels surreal to me. It just feels surreal. I love it. I love it. I love it. And just briefly for folks who don't know, Sosan is a key contributing author for the book, Pedagogies of Voice, Street Data and the Path to Student Agency. We're going to be co-writing at least two chapters and bringing a lot of her expertise in the classroom into the book. So super excited about that. So share with us who you are, the identities and stories you carry, and the ways in which your lived experiences and family legacy have shaped you into the educator and leader that you are today. I always introduce myself as a storyteller mm. because I think that stories have really shaped my entire being. I've grown up with an oral tradition of stories. My Palestinian intersection, right? My, I'm a Palestinian American Muslim female. My grandfather um, is a Nakba survivor. So for those who don't know, 1948 Palestinian occupation, Deir Yassin, the first village to be occupied. Mm. My grandfather was one of very few survivors. He was 15 at the time. He had his brothers were, were killed that night. Um, my great-great-grandmother was the midwife of the village, and um, she fought alongside. And so, like, that legacy of, like, female freedom fighters, strong, like, women in, is, is a part of my history. The stories that my grandfather has always, he's he's played such an integral role in my life. Like, I just... When I look back at the most beautiful moments of my childhood, he's been a part of all of them. And like just, you know, Palestinian Arab families are very communal. And so you live with generations and you interact with generations all the time. And so the very fabric of who I am as a social justice advocate comes from him. The value of education has come from him. Like we've known he has the key to his parents' home and he always says, our education and our children are going to be the pathway to us liberating Palestine. And it has to come from, it has to be rooted in education.
And so that love for education has always been something that he has planted. And although he never had the privilege because he was displaced again and again with the war, he never had the privilege of finishing his education. I think he's one of the smartest people that I know because he has always self-educated and is just so curious about the world. He was my, like my role model. Like I just wanted to be like him in so many ways. And so he has had such a huge impact on who I am as a human. And then as a Muslim, our Quran is, is very, very story-based. All of it is just, you know, stories that are passed down from our prophets. And so like, I just feel like those stories are very, just a very big part of me. And I feel like my life is a series of stories mm-hmm. that I really think about. And that that's what I like to share with people because I think stories humanize and they bring people together and they help us connect. And they just, they're a beautiful way of building community. And I always tell my students, like telling your story is a form of activism because it really does take apart those single stories. And so like, even if you are not the activist that's fighting on Capitol Hill or protesting in the streets, just owning your identity fearlessly and unfiltered and just telling that story is a beautiful way of being an activist because you're chipping away at stereotypes and single stories. And so that's what I hope to do every time I speak to people is to chip away at who people think I am, because although I'm a female from Arab descent, I am not weak. I am not male dominated. I am not a warmonger or somebody who can't coexist in an American place because that's what people think about who we are. Like I love our faith is peaceful. Our culture is beautiful. It's hospitable. It always has been. There's so many beautiful things that we miss because we're so hyper fixated on the Arab Muslim as a terrorist in America. And I feel like my entire being has been fighting that, those stereotypes. Oh, there's so much there, but I just love what you said about storytelling as a form of activism. And I just also love your grandfather's love for learning and education and how that has informed who you are as the powerhouse of an educator and leader um, in those spaces. And so thank you. What do you call your grandfather? Sido. Sido? Sido means grandfather, yeah. I was thinking about how abstract occupation is for so many Americans. And when you said your grandfather has the key, you know, I think people don't understand like how much keys, right, signify the right to return, signify the access to homeland. And so I just wanted to like zoom in on that for a minute, because I don't think people understand how significant it is that your grandfather carries that key. Everybody listening, I want you to just imagine that you come home and you can't, you cannot access your home. You are displaced from your home that is yours and that you're carrying for the next generations and decades the key to that home with you. Just imagine what that feels like. And it's because they all thought that they would eventually make it back, right? When they were displaced, they thought it was a temporary displacement, but it's been 75 years. My grandfather's 90 years old today. And he hopes, but doesn't believe that he's going to ever really be able to make it back to a free Palestine. He has the privilege of entering as an American citizen, but that often happens with humiliation, interrogation, and at the mercy of the Israeli army at the borders who decide who let people in. Like, I highly doubt that I'll ever be able to make it. And especially with the last year and a half of my like very loud, very public advocacy, I would be considered a threat. And so even my ancestral homeland, I have no access to, even if I'm an American citizen, because at the end of the day, it is an apartheid state. 
even areas that are considered Palestinian territories like the West Bank and Gaza historically, they have no freedom of movement. They have no access to any of the natural resources, water, no electricity, no food, no, no freedom to move from one part to the other. And at any point, the Israeli military, I mean, if you are in the West Bank or anywhere else in Palestine as a country, whether it's the Israeli part of Palestine or Palestine itself, Palestinian territories, you're surrounded by heavily armed soldiers all the time. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There are checkpoints. There are people that are shot randomly. There's no court of law that ever holds any of those people accountable and asks questions. People are jailed. We talk about like October 7th hostages and how horrible it is. But the reality is that there are hundreds of children under the age of 10 sitting in Israeli jails. There are hundreds and thousands of of Palestinians sitting in Israeli jails with no charges whatsoever for years, for decades. It's really interesting to me the way America has opted to have this conversation beginning October 7th in order to continue demonizing and blaming the Palestinian people for fighting for their own liberation. I'm feeling so much because so much of your story resonates as a Black human in this country, right? Like, and I'm Caribbean. I have a homeland. Like, I can go to my grandparents' home. They are they passed away, but I can go back. But imagine I try to show up there, and someone says that that's not. I can't. I can no longer access that space where I have memories and where so much of who I am is. I can't. Like, like it just feels like cutting off a a, a member of my body. Like it feels like I'm not even being drastic. There's so much commonality between the black struggle and the Palestinian struggle. And for Palestinians too, like like Native Americans, we're very, very attuned to the land, like itself. Like we feed off of the land, we pour into the land. And so like many Palestinians are farmers, most of them. So if you go into like Palestine, like the olive trees and the olive groves and the pomegranate and the orange groves, like that is life to the Palestinians. And so they have this attachment to the land and it's passed on from generations like a father gifts his sons and his daughters his land. And so like my grandfather's home was land, his, you know, it was generations of Javed's owning that land. It wasn't like it was something that he purchased on his own. It's generational wealth. It's the wealth is the land. Like that's what they took pride in. It wasn't money. It was land. It was their land. And so to have that stripped from you, it is your breath. It is your life. It is everything. You know, and I don't know if people understand that because here in America, I don't know if we have the attachment to the land. It's not something that's very present in the culture. But I always like whenever I read Native American literature and Father Earth, Mother Sky, like the just attunement to the land. It just reminds me so much of, of, of Palestinians because we're so attached to the land itself. And so the desecration of the land, it's as painful as watching human lives destroyed. a brilliant educator, your Palestinian identity is clearly central in everything you do. And you serve kids of all backgrounds and you serve them lovingly and inclusively and equitably. And you're a pedagogical genius, which is why I'm so lucky to have you be a part of this next project. Tell us about what actions educators can take specifically to support Palestinian and Arab students, but also just pedagogically, what should teachers be doing around this right now and not doing? 
it's so interesting because when I when I do so much of my work and even in my dissertation, I found myself by default centering black scholarship. Yes. Right. And it's really interesting to me that our most oppressed group historically as a country has always really, really advocated for everyone, right? Because what they were advocating for wasn't something that was only going to benefit black students and black community, but it was something that had we really listened and taken that into account and implemented it with fidelity, our country would have looked very different today, right? And I always say like, if we really did listen 400 years ago and even after like, as as the black community continued to advocate, we wouldn't be here having conversations about Palestine. So I don't believe that there's anything that can be done for Palestinian students that wouldn't benefit every child in every classroom. And that's one of the things that I center when I publicly speak, like, let's look at the reality of our country. We are the only country in the world right now that has school shootings. That is not an accident. Our, our community is not more violent. We are, we are 5% of the world's population, but 40% of its prison population. And most of them are black and brown young men. There's a reason for that, right? And when we look at school shootings, they are not people who look like me or Alcine who are doing the school shootings. They are primarily middle-class, affluent young men who feel like they don't belong in their spaces. So the need for us to do this work isn't anymore should we be doing it. It's how do we do it and how fast can we start to do it so that it's impacting our kids because our country needs to be healed. And educational spaces are the only spaces that can really disrupt and heal kids. Because right now we are contributing to the narrative. I always say like, if Palestine was taught with fidelity and humanized in school curriculum, we wouldn't have so many people who are willing to watch Palestinians completely erased off the face of the earth. But because we've only contributed to the dehumanization of Palestinians, so many people believe that what they're seeing on the news is true and it's deserved, right? And so for me, I think that we need to make shifts from being the gatekeepers. And I, I have done this work for a really long time, but it wasn't until I listened to the episode with Jamila Dugan naming radical dreaming that I was like, oh my God, that's what it is, right? And so like that has really been, it has kind of named so much of what I think I've been trying to do, but I didn't have the words for, and it really has centered. So I've been, I created a framework that I hope to one day maybe turn into my own book, who knows, that is a framework that is giving students the dream back. Like I call it a, a liberation framework. And how do we actually give students the ability to dream back? As a department chair, that's one of the things that we've really centered. We've done a, a we've taken your idea of a graduate profile from street data, but we've shaped it to be not an entire school street data uh, graduate profile, but our departmental graduate profile. And we've centered the four domains of holism to create a graduate profile for what we, who we want students to leave our program as English teachers. And we've used that to then now map out a curriculum that is leading kids to this idea and this space where they can dream and contribute and walk into the world, not as, and I think that's one of the shifts that I've made in the last few years. I kept talking about kids being active citizens in their local communities. And now I feel like just given the way things have unfolded in our country post-COVID, during COVID, and just the whole world and how it's shifted and how technology has made us so much closer and really diminished the idea of borders and spaces to becoming global citizens. How do we get kids to become global citizens of the world and really ask the right questions and understand how with their positionality, with their locus of control, and with all of the talents and gifts that every child and every human being has, how can I contribute to making change? And it doesn't mean that I have to stop what I'm doing or where I am or who I am, but within those skills and things that I'm passionate about, because let's 
like be real, systems of oppression exist everywhere. Whether we're talking about urban planning or we're talking about finances or we're talking about journalism or education, they're everywhere. So how can I as a teacher disrupt? How can I as an urban planner disrupt? How can I as a journalist disrupt within my locus of control? What does that look like? And so really immersing and understanding that, like, who cares about similes and metaphors if I'm not teaching kids how a simile and metaphor can get them closer to telling a story that's going to be something that's important to them. Or rhetoric as a way of elevating your perspective so that people will listen. Or a period as a place to force people to stop and listen to and think about words as opposed to it being an end of a sentence, right? Like, so kind of shifting so that we own the skills that we're trying to integrate. And they're not things like I need to regurgitate for a test. I don't care about the five paragraph essay. I really don't care for it. But it's like, what is your story? Mm-hmm. What yeah. is important to you? What is the issue that you, if we're going to talk about persuasive writing, what's important Absolutely. to you, right? And when we do research, we talk about research as a form of activism. What is missing in the literature? What's important to you? And how are you going to use this to move something that's important to you forward within the community that you live in? And so we have kids really interrogating school systems, policies, practices, and then coming back. And now that you've done this like research, who are the stakeholders that we need to communicate to? How do you shape that communication in order to make a difference? And we actually connect them to different stakeholders so that they can go and present their research with a, a, an action, like a requested action for from a call to action from the people they're presenting to. And once they they realize, A, how important their voices are, how, how capable they are, that they can dream and they can move towards those dreams. These kids are fierce, they're fearless. And if they're given the ability to just, and it all starts like our freshman year, the curriculum that we're currently writing and, and implementing, it's all about loving yourself because you can't, love everybody else and advocate for anyone else if it doesn't start with first having a true deep understanding of yourself as the way you view yourself in the mirror and yourself as someone who's a part of a larger global community because there's often a disconnect between how you view yourself and how people view you and that does shape how you walk in the world and how you interact with it and so we continue to say that k-12 education is preparing kids for a real world How are we preparing kids for a real world when they are like in the school that I taught in last year, there were a lot of Latin A students and they had a really strong community, but it wasn't because we were doing something right. It was because they found community within each other. And my concern always was let's take these kids out of this community. And when they go off to college, how will they survive when they realize that the safety net that they've created for themselves doesn't exist outside? If they go to places like Texas or Iowa or Florida, where who they are and their very being is being attacked very publicly and very explicitly. And we wonder why many of our black and brown students don't make it past the first year of university. I just want to also name your power of storytelling and offer a reframe a little bit, because when I was working in the South Bronx and the kids were like, why do you want us to go to college so much? And I was like, because it's not about what you will learn there. It's the fact that you have a story to tell and anyone around you is in your orbit needs to hear your story. So I have to make sure that I equip you with the skills so that you can tell that story however you choose to. If you want to use all your big academic words, go for it. If you want to cuss people out, go for it. Right? Like just like all the ways in which you can use your voice to share your story because you're right. You might not have community, but you will always have your voice. You will always have your voice.
now with with the censorship that's happening very explicitly around our country, that becomes so much more important for a lot of different reasons, because all of a sudden now, the gatekeepers who decide what kind of literature makes it into our classrooms, the process of trying to get books approved, you don't need to because your students are your best and most rich resource in the classroom, and so is the world, right? And so when we get students to become content creators instead of just consumers of the world, and we teach them empathy from a place of power and not pity, we create community. Yes. Like I always challenge people, come into my classroom and try to tell me that you see communities like this exist anywhere else. They love each other because we really do get rid of the idea of duality. You, we tell kids, and it's the sense of holism, come into my space because this is your space too. And I love you. I love all, all everything that you bring to the table, your culture, your language, your religion, everything, the way you show up, we accept you. So even if it's an English classroom, if you have a native language, Bring it into the space, write in your native language and don't translate for me because you're not creating for me. You are creating for yourself, right? That is something that you're putting out into the world and it's a representation, it's a piece of you. So I don't want you to write for me. I want you to write for yourself. And that by itself, I think it, those mirrors, we keep talking about mirrors, windows and sliding glass doors. I'm not the gatekeeper of what I think a mirror of my students who I'm not demographically aligned to. I'm a different demographic, no matter how much I try to understand their lived experiences, I don't share that lived experience. So I won't be the gatekeeper and say, here's a book that represents you, or here's a poem that I think you'll relate to. No, create something that represents you. And that automatically becomes a window for other kids to learn from. We're getting authentic texts that are created by students for students and for the rest of the world too. We bring in published texts from all different backgrounds as mentor texts, but we don't say like, I'm, I feel like cultural responsiveness has been a crutch and it's been misused to really immerse kids sometimes in stereotypes of themselves. And I call it well-intentioned harmful impact. So these are ways that we are dismantling all of those things and not making those mistakes. When we think we're doing something right, but instead we're giving kids the opportunity to say, what is your story? Elevate your story and that will become our text. We teach them too that this is a very iterative process because you'll continue to grow as a human and you'll continue to grow as a writer. And so nothing is ever finished. Keep coming back to it and keep writing about it. And you know, have them reflect on their whys and constantly like centering the world and getting them to understand how they are members of a much larger fabric and we're all interconnected. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Mic drop to end our time together. You said so much there. And I just want to thank you so much for the way in which you continue to, to show up in a lot of grace, humanity. You're like always a teacher. I just want to also center my parents too, because I definitely think like they've passed that legacy. I always say my dad always worked with his hands and my story is literally in his hands. Like you can look at my dad's hands and see like the the work of decades in order to put us in the best schools and move state borders in order for us to be in school. So my parents have definitely carried that legacy. It would be in, unjust of me not to name them and elevate them here as well. Thank you. Your ancestors are so proud. You have done them well. You have done them well. Thank you. Thank you. Both. point we're transitioning into a brief reflection that Alcine and I always do at the end of a season on what we learned from the previous season and where we're headed next. So welcome to our final episode of season three. 
Woohoo! This has been a season, boy. Oh my God, so much has happened. <laughs> Personally, globally, all the things. I know, I know. Well, let's start with a little warm-up. Alcine, can you share a reflection from season three, either a learning you're taking away or a moment that stayed with you? Yeah, I'm going to um, weave my story between multiple seasons. So think back, I don't even know if it was season two when we talked with Matt and Jessica, your former colleagues and current colleagues, but like former friends in the work at June Jordan. And Jessica had this profound statement or she had this profound comment about what it means for us as emerging elders in this like middle space, like holding space for younger folks who are vibrant, and very active and very idealistic in ways that we also were or are, maybe, I hope we still are, and then what it means to actually like hold your stance as an elder. For me, it's around how do I switch my own identity to now being the elder? Mm. Not saying Oof. that I have all this knowledge to share or inspire, mm. but that you know we need to be careful not to patronize the younger generation, yes, right? Yes. There is so much good work happening in classrooms. Yes. There's so much resilience yes. in our teachers right now, right? And it is, it's around where do we provide that sense of hope and space? Our job is to hold the container while not providing the solution, right? We can say, this is kind of what worked for us to get to this similar space. Because change is going to happen, yeah. right, with the younger generation. It already is. What's missing? And so I was thinking about that a lot this year. And there was a particular moment with a guest where I was very activated because they made a comment around race. Now, this person is a person of color. And, and it was a comment that really, A, like I was you know, activated. Shane could see it on my face because she knows me and I was just breathing deep. So I got to practice our question in the lightning round of what do you do when someone says something that is triggering? And I did and I took some deep breaths and I leaned into my curiosity and I think I asked a couple of questions and and then we had to like hold space for our producer and we had to do we had to do some stuff there to kind of move through that moment and it just was a um, practical moment of how to tap into that middle ground of how do you hold space for people to come to their own ideas whether the, you agree with them or not, right? It's like, it's people's ideas. It has nothing to do with you. And, they, and, I, and I trust that they have come to their idea through a well-informed pathway, through a lot of lived experience, a lot of relationships and, and, and stuff. And so it was a moment, though. I had to, like, work through my own things. And I appreciate just having this forum and this space and you as a friend to kind of hold space for me afterwards. There were many voice memos that went back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> Truth. We're the voice memo queens. So that's a moment that really speaks out for me. you Shane what's a moment that you really appreciated or resonated or is still with you in your heart you know as we record this final episode of season three we're also at the same time producing the previous episode which you all would have already heard with our first two student leaders who mm -hmm. come from a district mm -hmm. in, in BC near Vancouver and that whole conversation is sitting with me in such a deep way as we think about what it means to hold young people through this moment of global 
pain and turmoil and oppression and trauma. And I think the moment, there are many moments in that conversation that are staying with me, but one of them is where Harshan, one of our student guests, said, it's ridiculous to tell teachers to not talk about what's happening, for example, in Gaza with students. If you're constantly just being told that you can't talk about this, you never will talk about it. You never will resolve it. You never will fix it. So I, I think that's a pretty pretty dumb sentiment. I think I think people should talk about it. And that you all underestimate us as young people. You know, who's to decide we're not, quote unquote, mm-hmm. ready, we're not mature enough. Mm-hmm. And the other thing he said that really stayed with me, I thought it was so, so insightful, is when we don't talk about what's happening, we really foster more mental health issues and we stigmatize the levels of anxiety and depression and that a lot of adolescents are struggling with and we isolate them. And so it just reinforced for me just the importance of voice and the importance of opening up spaces of conversation right now around all the levels of identity formation and meaning making and Mm -hmm. breaking through the current world to hopefully a new world that are Mm -hmm. that are unfolding on the planet. And I also I also think about, you know, his statement around getting off of our pedestal, but I'm going to I'm going to flip it a little bit because, you know, at the heart of what you're sharing, what I hear and what I have to also actively grapple with is the fear of saying something that then has repercussions for either myself or other people. Right. Like we are very um, intentional on our podcast of how do we create levels of protection for our guests, right? And I think about, you know, the choices we make behind the scenes around, like even not naming the school or the prop, right? Like all of those things that our guests on the show are in because we don't want any ramifications, negative implications going their way, blow back going their way. But I think about what he was saying about like, we adults have to get off our pedestal. And I think that's also part of like the fear, right? Like fear puts us on a pedestal where we feel like we can't be wherever we're supposed to be we have to stick on that say on that pedestal and there's there's that level of fear that I also see and hear with colleagues with adults around not going there in those conversations absolutely absolutely and not trusting the young people as an educator parent I'm all about student voice and agency until my own babies come home with some feedback. And I'm like, no, thank you. (laughs) No, I do try to listen to them. But, you know, it's challenging. Like, it's we're we like our positional power as adults to keep it real. And we have to really get out of our own way and get out of their way and Mm -hmm. decenter ourselves, which is going to be a big theme of the next book. So let's shift to you, Alcine. One of the things we wanted to do in this reflection episode is is really create a little space for some professional storytelling and journey telling from Alcine, who many listeners don't know has a deep lineage and pedigree in transformative assessment and just school transformation. I know this because I've been her friend for 20 years almost. (laughs) And so if you could tell us a little bit about the work you've led in the field and what you feel most inspired by these days. Yeah, that's so funny. So early in November, I think right before your birthday, actually, I went to Fan- I went up to the Bronx because we had the 30th anniversary of Fannie Lou Hamer Freedom High School, which is where I cut my teeth into teaching, which is a very 
active yeah. school community in which our kiddos are very clear about their mission and vision and how to use their intelligence and their critical thinking skills mm-hmm. and their youthful energy and vibrancy to push back on systems that don't serve them. And so that's kind of how I started teaching and all the progressive structures that go with that advisory, multi-age looping. I mean, we were doing narrative report cards and we were doing all these really interesting grading structures that I kind of feel a little disconnected from. I, I get it because I've run schools, but I feel a little disconnected from the, the, the push that happens around grading and, and progressive systems and how, how do we get around that? I'm like, well, just don't do it. And then there are ways that you communicate with your community around what that means to not do that choice. And then you have to work hard as hell as a building leader or a district leader who's going to push back on a system like that to make sure that the kiddos don't suffer. So I'm not saying it's easy, but it is quite simple, right? Like, it's like, just don't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, in my other job, which I joke about all the time, I get to help school districts across the country create, like you said, transformative learning experiences all from the lens of assessment, right? We are at this place in education, whether you love it or hate it, where what gets assessed gets taught. And so I just lean into that and say, fine, so let's make sure that we're assessing learning that really matters and assessing learning that really has implications for the lives of the young people and the communities in which our schools are situated in, right? I mean, because one of the explicit purposes of public schools is to strengthen and create a democracy, a well-educated community that can then make decisions in democratic ways that serve their communities best. One of the things that I just lean into is this idea of like, so let's do that hard work of of creating assessments that really assess the academic skills and the dispositions that we know our babies need. And then let's do the hard work of figuring out, so then how do we wrap the school structures, processes, the pedagogies around the learners and the things we say matter as evidence of learning. So can you give us a quick kind of one-inch window into a transformative assessment and related learning experience from your work in the last few years has really like lit you on fire? I mean, Shane, I'm pretty easy when it comes to that. All of it lights me on fire. I, I'm I'm so blessed that I get to, you know, I'm VP of program. So I kind of get to say which organizations, uh, which communities, which districts my organization works with. And so we don't work with everybody because not everybody's serious about the work, right? Like, it's like, if you're going to do this, then do it. Mm-hmm. I'm working with a state education department as they're trying to create Um, They've had this mechanism for making sure that kiddos can graduate in their state through performance assessments, through capstone experiences, portfolio defenses, whatever you want to call them. And they realized that like a large majority, like over 90% of the districts in the state identify that as the main lever avenue that they want to assess their graduation rate, which is great, right? Like 90% of these districts are choosing these high quality performance assessments. Problem is, is that... um, 
it's all over the map in terms of quality. So I get to work with this state agency to really hone in. And how we're doing it is we're listening to stakeholders. We're listening to the district who are actually doing the work. And so we're asking them what metrics, what measures, what strategies, what processes actually help you to get to high quality performance assessments. I am also equally excited about what you have coming up, Shane, and this project that just seems to be blossoming and moving forward in so many beautiful ways. And I hear snippets every now and again, but I want you to tell us a little bit about this new book project that's unfolding. Um, what are you learning that is most surprising and exciting? And I, and I do want you to share a little bit about how you're structuring this project, because I think that, that is like, oh, chef's kiss. So for listeners who've been following the season and hearing me ask this incessant question to guests about Pedagogy of Voice, yesterday I signed a book contract with Corwin Press for a next book, a, a sequel, if you will, a Star Wars sequel to, <laughs> to Street Data, Pedagogies of Voice, Street Data, and the Path to Student Agency. So all those themes appear in Chapter 5 of Street Data, but seemed worthy of, of their own book and project. And this is really going to be more of a teacher-facing and educator-facing, certainly with, with ways that instructional leaders and coaches can use it as well. And I I think I'm feeling, it's hard to put words on this, but this it feels like the one of the most emergent projects I've ever worked on. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is I wasn't sure I wanted to write another book. And so I really wanted to listen to the field. I wanted to listen to teachers and 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 really like attuned to whether there is a book to be written. Not like, am I going to write a book? But is there a book outside of me that needs to be birthed? And so I had this beautiful opportunity to start building these collaborations with three educators, three teacher leaders. And we ran a series of focus groups in the spring with teachers. We had, I think, 140 teachers from across the globe applied. We did five or six six focus groups ultimately with about 25 educators. We video recorded them with permission and we analyzed all that data. And from that street data, a concept emerged, a, a book emerged, right, that was already really nested in street data but became so much more full and rich and layered and multifaceted out of those focus groups. And I will say that aside from the excitement of the content and the the framework of the book, which is, you know, the concept is all written out. Just the energy of the collaboration is something magical. <laughs> like the love and care that this little team has for each other and the ways we're showing up in such a painful time in history. I hope and I feel that this book is going to taste like the love that's been in the process. All right, so briefly, for those of you who are faithful listeners wondering about season four, the next season on the horizon, we are going to, of course, continue this beloved project. But we're going to shift the structure a little bit. We're taking a hiatus for December and January. We'll start back up in February. In the spring semester, in season four, we're going to alternate between re-releasing 
some really powerful episodes from the first three seasons that we'd love for more people to get to listen to, and then including one new episode per month. So we're going to kind of scale back on production for February through June while I am churning out this book (laughs) with my colleagues, but then continue to bring you some new content. And we would just love to make sure that all these genius guests we've had, Dr. Lisa Delpit, Denise Augustine, Dr. Jamila Dugan, Linda, Dr. Linda Darling-Hammond, Dr. Kia Darling-Hammond. I mean, we've Jal had- and Gail. Like, Jal and on. Gail. Like, we've had such incredible people on. Yes. So we're going to work on making sure that more people hear those episodes. Is there anything you want to add to that before we wrap up this reflection? Yeah. You're still going to hear us every two weeks. That's still going to be the cadence that we're committed to. And there will still be, I'm sure, ample blooper reels towards the end of every episode. And you'll still hear our lovely theme music. And we're going to keep the format of the show, but we're going to do it in a way that actually honors our human capacity right now. And like both of the work that we do in the world is is very taxing because it is so cognitive. And that takes a toll on our bodies. And I know that we both have been like, paying more attention to our bodies over the years and listen I don't know about you but this this aging thing girl we have to pay attention to that and so this is our our way of straddling both worlds and still being committed to the work that we love to do together and with you all so that's what's coming up in season four Hey, Street Data Pod, we'd love to hear your street data stories and questions. So please leave us a voicemail at 415-335-9997 or send an email to streetdatapod at gmail.com. That's streetdatapod at gmail.com. We might even feature your voicemail or question on a future episode. Talk to you soon. Street Data Pod is executive produced and hosted by Shane Safir and Alcine Mumby. The senior producer is Zoe Morgan, and our production manager is Jamie Valle. Thank you to Zoe as well for social media support, and a special shout out to Rocky Rivera for our theme music. If you want to get a copy of Street Data, visit Amazon, Corwin Press, or better yet, a local independent or Black-owned bookstore. At Corwin's website, use discount code STREETDATA, all caps, to get 20% off. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rambling or fumbling over our words, remember, we can't be articulate all of the time. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rumbling, (laughs) yep, start again. If you found us rumbling, we were fighting. Okay.